sorry for our attitudes and for arguing and please just calm Caitlin down and and please heal her and you know she had her hand on my head and when she finishes the prayer she leaves the room and I hear a pop in my ear and my hearing came back 100% in my left ear at that moment and I of course sorry I, I start bawling again <laughs> I was like she runs back in the room. Why are you crying? You just prayed about this. My hearing came back. And in my moment of weakness and sin, when I had an attitude and I was frustrated and everything, but yet then we went to the Lord and we prayed and we confessed our sins. He gave me a gift that I didn't deserve. And it was his grace that healed me. I'm Sharon Batters, and I am so excited to introduce to you Caitlin Jane, who is in the studio with me today. Caitlin's story is sometimes sounds like a fairy tale, as you're going to hear. She has experienced a life-threatening medical diagnosis and challenge after challenge right at the beginning of her experiencing the joy of living the dream a lifelong dream of becoming that recording artist. Her story is going to resonate with young people, I think especially, as you listen to her talk about obstacles that I think people who have lived 50 or 60 years would have trouble overcoming. And yet what you're going to hear and see is a picture of a young woman who dug deep into her heart and found her childhood faith that helped guide her through a very difficult maze of obstacles, of disappointments, of heartbreak, and yet she was able to also find joy and purpose all throughout that journey. So welcome, Caitlin. We're so glad to have you here with us today. Well, it's great to be here with you today, Sharon. And yes, um, I grew up in a home. I look back at my memories from childhood and my teen years, and they're all mostly very happy and had a wonderful family that really rooted me in the Lord and in his word and in faith and had a wonderful church family and um, also went to a Christian school. So I just had some really wonderful fellowship there. And I really believe those early years formed me and helped develop um, just those, the spiritual roots deep in my heart for the things that would happen later on uh, in my journey. And just so grateful for all that God did uh, during those years, because I know he really did bless that time. As a teenager, did you ever experience some of the pressures that teens experience today, like peer pressure and comparing yourself to others or bullying or anything like that? I think every teenager experiences that in one way or another. Sometimes it's more extreme than others. I would say I did have a wonderful group of friends and for the most part had a really happy teen years, but I can definitely remember times where I wanted to fit in with the popular crowd, but I also wanted to be friends with maybe the not so popular crowd and choosing to sit at a certain lunch table or associating with someone in particular might leave you out for the next party or, you know, the next event going on you might not get invited to. And those are probably the situations I remember the most. And my mom will remind me, remember when you cried about, you know, such and such? Oh, yeah, I do. And, you know, it's interesting, though, those same friends maybe that hurt me in middle school or in high school, some of them 
have been dear friends later on and have actually really helped me through, you know, the tougher things in life. So I, I like to encourage young people and I say sometimes, maybe those friends are hurtful now, but they actually might be wonderful people in your life later on. So give them a little grace and be patient. God is working on their heart. Looking back, what would you say kept you kind of steady in those, okay, you got through those bumps and along the way, but what would you say to a teenager? This is what really helped me to face those challenges. I think um, there's a few things that really impacted me. One was just having some Christian role models and mentors, other women, you know, a little bit older than me, and who I could look up to and could help mentor me along the way. I remember doing a Bible study with a young woman, and it was a few of my friends, and she was kind of just mentoring us in high school, and that was really powerful. We just, we looked up to her so much, and we wanted to be like her, and it helped keep our hearts focused on the Lord instead of all the peer pressure and the things surrounding us. I think choosing friends is so important. I think middle school, high school, and college, I always tell people, I say your experience really can be drastically different depending on the friends that you choose and the people that you surround yourself with because you tend to become like them. And I look back and I had a few wonderful friends that really just challenged me in my faith and kept me accountable and inspired me to want to read God's word as a young person and want to be involved in church and want to do those things. And and then another thing I think that really impacted me was reading. I think the more you read God's word or, you know, other inspirational books and and teachings and other people's stories, you get inspired to, to become the person that God wants you to become. And I think looking back, um, books played a, a big part in my journey too. <laughs> I like what you said about being in a group where there was a, a young woman who was older than you, but old enough to be, that's who I want to be like when I grow yes. up kind of thing. Yeah. And what a an encouragement to college girls, young women to pour their lives into those middle schoolers and those teen girls. It, yes. it makes it makes an impact. I think I also read in one of your articles, you journaled. Um, yes. Did you journal when you were in high school? I did almost every night <laughs> from probably about seventh grade on. I don't know if my parents thought it was the greatest idea because it would keep me up past midnight. But I think it really helped me process a lot of the things in life, you know, the hard, hard things you encounter, the good things. And it was also a time of reflection and prayer just to grow closer with God. And I look back at some of my journals and I laugh at the things I write. And in some ways I'm like, wow, I've changed so much. But in some ways I haven't changed much, you know. Well, um, what do you think about parent uh, when, when a teen, if a teen says to you, I can't stand my mother, I can't stand my parents, yeah. how do you respond to something yeah. like that? I think that's very normal. <laughs> I am so close with my parents today, and I think we always had a close relationship, but I look back at my teen years, and I was a pretty good kid outside of the home, but in the home, I definitely had an attitude, and I don't know how they put up with me. Thank God they... Um, they did discipline me and they gave me grace too. <laughs> but looking back, I realized that they always had my best interest at heart. They wanted to give me certain boundaries because they loved me. And that's what a parent should do, a godly parent. And you're not always going to feel like best friends with your parent. They're not there to be your best friend. They're there to be a protector and um, 
the authority in your life that God places in your life when you are a teen. And so it's okay if you don't like your parents all the time. That feeling of liking them might not be natural, but it is so important to learn to respect and honor them because God has put them there. And if I could change anything about my teen years, it would probably be going back and respecting my parents more and showing them more love and kindness in the way that I treated them. Well, in your journey, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, I know that your mom was an incredible, important part of that journey when the lights in your life went out. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do that, when I told our audience who was here with me, I said, recording artist, Caitlin Jane. Tell us about your passion for music and how that has impacted your life. Um, music has always been so special to me. I remember, I think it was just an ingrained passion that God put inside of me when he created me. Because as a child, I remember just singing and banging away at the piano. I didn't know what I was doing as a little toddler, but I was just always sitting there playing notes and uh, begging my parents to give me lessons. And I just loved it. And I loved creating songs. I remember my first piano lesson at six years old. I went in and told my teacher, I wrote a song this week. She's like, you don't know anything about piano. (laughs) But um, so it's just been such a a passion in my life. And it's grown over the years throughout high school and college. I did a lot with worship teams and uh, musical theater and developed more songwriting. And as I finished out college, I actually released my first CD EP called Ashes into Beauty. And that was just a really amazing experience to be able to record for the first time these songs that I had written and stored up in my heart, but it was the first time I really got to release them to the world. That was so exciting. As the years went on, past few years after college experience, I was able to really delve into music ministry and do different worship events and women's events and just all sorts of wonderful things. And it was part-time at first, and then it became a full-time ministry. And I just feel like the Lord has really blessed the road that I've traveled. And every step along the way, I just see His fingerprints guiding my path. And we're going to include uh, ways to contact you on our website uh, so that people can check you out and see if you'd be a great match for their event. Well, so you're living your dream. You're involved in music. You're giving concerts. You're really making a name for yourself. And then your life turned upside down. Tell us about that. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So between I graduated from college in 2008 and it was 2014 and I was like you said, really um, delving into my music ministry full time. Um, at this point, my song on the coming season CD, Unborn, had really taken off. It's a song that celebrates the sanctity of life. And so a lot of the events I was doing were for pro-life and pregnancy centers. God was just really blessing my journey. And I, I felt, you know, like I had everything in the world. And I remember sitting at my computer doing work Uh, one day and everything just started turning double on me. I was seeing two on the screen and I was getting dizzy and I thought, wow, I must just be spending too much time at the computer. I'll take some time, you know, go do something else. And then it didn't go away. And so I called my ophthalmologist and I made an appointment and he did a thorough exam and he said, your eyes are great. You have 20-20 vision. I don't know really what's going on. It should go away. You know, has probably computer fatigue, like you think. But if it's if it doesn't go away, let me know. You should probably see a specialist. So another week went by. I remember sitting in church, and I just you know glanced out, 
and everyone to my right was normal. There was one of them. And everyone to my left, there was two of them. And I wrote a note to my parents and I was like, this is funny. I'm seeing two of everyone on my left. And it was Father's Day. Yeah, 2014. And I remember going out to lunch with my my parents afterwards and they're like, you need to get this followed up. This is not normal. So I went to my primary care physician that week and he said, you know, let's just get an MRI to rule out anything major. So I said, okay, got the MRI done probably the next day. It was very quick. And I got a phone call shortly thereafter. And that's when the bomb hit. Um, He told me over the phone that I think their words were, there's it looks like a growth in your brain. I know what that meant. Mm-hmm. What is that? I think they didn't want to use the word brain tumor because that's scary. But it's I started sinking in, and that was the beginning of a journey that I never expected to go on. What was the prognosis? Well, it took a while, actually, to get the actual prognosis. They said, you need to see a neurologist and... So I immediately tried to. I didn't know how hard it was to get in with a neurologist. So that took several weeks to see one. And I think the Lord was gracious. It, The news at the beginning didn't seem so bad. And I actually went on vacation for two weeks because I couldn't get in to see a neurologist. So I just kept praying and trusting the Lord. I knew it could be serious, but we didn't know how serious. And family was just, you know, the Lord has this under control. When you get into the doctor, you'll get in. We'll find out. And the day that I went to my neurologist was probably one of the hardest days. I remember I thought I was going to faint, but I was sitting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just that feeling of total shock going through your body when he said, So you have a tumor and it does look benign, but this is in the worst part of the human anatomy and I have no idea how they're going to get it and it needs to come out. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, I want you to see every neurosurgeon that you can possibly see and then you have to make a decision. How old were you? I was 27 at the time, yes. And I remember just just the shock of it in that moment. And, you know, like I said, I felt the Lord's peace this whole time. It was really a supernatural peace carrying me. But that moment, it felt like the movies when whatever happens that's awful happens and you just feel like, okay, I didn't expect this. This wasn't supposed to be my life journey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I really appreciated that doctor, though, because he was so honest with me and he really laid out the truth of the matter, and he didn't sugarcoat anything. And so from then on, um, over the next several months, I saw several neurosurgeons and talked to different ones around the country and went to all the major hospitals on the East Coast. And I think in total, I think I had a series of about 10 different doctors that I had seen. And the consensus um, in general from the best and most experienced neurosurgeons was that this was an inoperable tumor. And then radiation oncologists were telling me that radiation was not a good option either. So it was just too close to, um, it was pressing on the brainstem and there was three critical nerves that affect the vision, hearing, uh, facial movement. And then it was also very close to the nerves that affect swallowing and just all your basic functions. And they're all in a very, very tight space of just, we're talking millimeters. And there was also a major artery running through the tumor. So it was just, they would all look at it and go, 
wow. <laughs> and uh, one of the very finest surgeons in the country basically told me, well, you have a good life now. Just if it's slow growing, just you have a few years to enjoy until it takes over. And I think he tried to make it sound like happy, but it was difficult. It was a difficult journey going from hospital to hospital and getting these answers. During this time, something else happened in your life. Yes. Tell tell (laughs) us about that. So a young man entered into my life, um, which is funny. God has a sense of humor because I remember when this all happened, I told my family, I'm just so glad I'm not dating anyone right now. I feel free to focus on my health and get this situation resolved. And I have no drama of dating and no worries. (laughs) And then the Lord had a different plan, but he was so sovereign and good and knew exactly what was supposed to happen. And so I had very a very close friend who was engaged to be married to a young man, and this young man had in mind that I needed to meet someone. Um, his name is Kapil, and I I didn't even know Kapil very well. Um, my friend's fiance I had only met him once for about maybe ten minutes, but he had it in mind. Um, we like to joke, his family's from India. We say they make the best matchmakers. <laughs> he knew from the start that we were supposed to meet. And so I thought that they would be gracious enough to inform this other young man, Jamie, that I had a brain tumor. That would just be nice to let him know before meeting. But they didn't. They left that out of the story when they told him about me. <laughs> so he went ahead and decided to meet me. And I don't know if it was love at first sight, but there was definitely an attraction there <laughs> the night we met. You're 27 years old. You have an inoperable brain tumor. You now have Prince Charming, who has <laughs> entered your life. Yes. Um, and then you say that being pro-life actually saved your yes. life. So yes. tell us tell us how that happened. So it was actually shortly before I met Jamie, God began to answer some of our prayers and show us a path for my medical future. I I think I mentioned earlier, I have a song called Unborn that celebrates the sanctity of life and just portrays the struggle of um, a mother who's facing an unplanned pregnancy, but it's from the perspective of an unborn child. And the music video has actually been used with a lot of pregnancy centers and right-to-life groups around the country to... Um, help women make life-affirming choices. So that's just been a passion of mine the past several years is sharing the message of life and encouraging young women with that truth. And through that pro-life ministry that I have, I was contacted, I think it was January of 2014, so before I ever got my diagnosis, by Marciano Ministries. And they asked me if they might be able to use the music video when they're doing some presentations because they were actually making um, a full-length pro-life film in Hollywood. And I said, sure, that'd be great. And lo and behold, I ended up um, really becoming friends with this man, Bruce Marciano, who is the producer and director of this film, Allison's Choice, that they were making at the time. And he wanted to have a conference call one day and I told my parents, oh, you know, I'm going to have a conference call with this filmmaker, Bruce Marciano. And my mom about fainted. She goes, you know who that is? And I'm like, 
I don't know. She's like, that's Jesus. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? And this was the actor who played Jesus in a series called The Gospel According to Matthew, which was very popular in the 90s. A lot of churches used it. My parents, their Bible study back in the day actually studied the book of Matthew and then followed this series because it's word for word from the gospel. And as a child, I used to watch this. And so this was my picture of Jesus was this Bruce Marciano. And so finally I connected the dots and I'm just thinking, this is so funny. This is great. I'm going to have a phone call with Jesus. (laughs) And so we form a friendship and I just really had a lot of respect for his ministry. Um, He's just the real deal. I about a year earlier, had spent a little bit of time out in the Hollywood area, just connecting with some filmmakers and CD producers and things like that. Um, And I remember being very jaded by that experience, feeling like, oh, even the Christians in this industry aren't the real deal. And then when I talked to Bruce, I was so refreshed by his love for the Lord and that that really came first before any of, you know, Anything else, the the whole film industry didn't matter in comparison to the Lord. And so we've developed this friendship. And so I remember in June when I got the diagnosis, I emailed him and just asked their ministry team to be praying for me. And he sent back an email, of course, we'll be praying. And he did say something like, one of my great friends' brother-in-laws is a world-renowned brain surgeon. I think he's like the best in the world. He's out here in L.A. I could hook you up with him if you want me to. And so as I'm getting, you know, closed door, closed door, closed door with every, it seems like every good option that I had, we looked into this, this surgeon and lo and behold, um, I remember the first time looking at his website, the Skull Base Institute, and my dad and I were just like, wow, I think this could be the man. This could be the doctor that does it? But is is it for real? And we actually, we had a Skype session with him. That's how he does, because most of his patients are from around the world. And I remember after that conversation, just looking at my dad again and going, I think this is it. I think he's the guy that's going to save my life. There was just so much peace. He does this particular endoscopic procedure that no one else does, and it's very rare. We had to really ask the Lord for wisdom and discernment because we had peace about it, but some of the people in the medical field were saying, don't go that route, don't go that route. He, you know, it's not going to work out for you. But I just kept watching his brain surgery videos, and I thought, this this is it. I just had this extraordinary peace, and I really believe that was the Holy Spirit. So you went to California and you had the surgery. I can only imagine the anxiety of those who love you as you were wheeled into that operating room. As, you know, we think about your life and it's kind of like a fairy tale where something bad happens, something good happens, something bad happens, something good happens. Uh, And for there to be a fairy tale that's engaging, there always has to be this evil force, this darkness. Describe for us some of those dark days, the dark feelings that you experienced experience along the way. You know, there were those up and down moments. I think one of the hardest things for me was I was falling in love with Jamie and I didn't want him to get hurt in the process. I didn't know what the outcome of my surgery would be. And I also didn't want to lose this wonderful 
potential life with this great man and I'm, you know, staring possibly death in the face or lifelong disabilities if surgery didn't go perfectly. I remember a few times having nightmares or just waking up in the middle of the night with that sudden fear, that gripping fear. And it, it did feel like just sheer darkness. It didn't happen a lot. I really think the Holy Spirit protected me and gave me this extraordinary peace. But there was probably two or three times that it just hit me how serious this situation was and how even though we had found this incredible surgeon, it it might not go perfectly. And it had to go perfectly to have a good result. And I remember thinking about eternity and death and really having to go back to the basics of my faith. What do I believe? And do I believe that God is sovereign? Do I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins and that he has saved me, that I do have eternal life? You know, death is the one sure thing for all of us that we're all facing, but it's easy to go through life and not think about it because it's not really a convenient thing to think about. But when you're looking at the possibility of it, you have to come to that moment of, do I really believe what I say I believe? And is this truth? And I remember one Sunday morning in church worshiping and just tears filling my eyes. And it, it just, I was flooded with that hope and that joy of eternity. And I felt like the worst thing on this side that could happen is death, but it's actually the best thing. And I thought, it's okay. I will be with Jesus forever. I don't know what that looks like exactly, but I do believe that. And that's what my whole life has been founded on and based on. And so at this critical time, that's where my belief is. I can't, I can't stand on anything but that rock. That is my rock. I think about how young you are. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it wasn't that long ago mm -hmm. that all of this happened. Mm -hmm. And we've already talked about your growing up years and how you really had a strong foundation mm -hmm. that was built into you. And I think that's a, a strong message for young people Definitely. is to don't take for granted those moments of the teaching. You know, you might be um, at church or your parents are making you go to youth group or mm -hmm. something like that. And you feel like, what in the world is the point of all this? Mm -hmm. But it's really preparation for life. And someday, you're going to need that. It might not be when you're 20. Or it could be when you're 30 or older, but there, there's value. There's incredible value in building that strong foundation. And so you've kind of already answered this, but the surgery was successful, obviously. Describe the feelings that you felt when you heard those words, but also um, was there kind of a waiting room after the surgery where the recovery and how did it really work? That was a difficult time in my life for sure. Leading up to surgery, my parents and Jamie flew out to California with me where the my surgeon, Dr. Shahinian, operates. And my brothers actually surprised me the day before, which was awesome. I was on a trail and they ran up on me and that was just beautiful. So we had a meeting with Dr. Shahinian a few days before surgery and he laid out all the what ifs. You know, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. And I was pretty excited by this point just to get this thing over with. So I was I was feeling ready. Um, I think my parents and Jamie might have felt a little more <laughs> different <laughs> when they start hearing all this. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I knew all the possibilities, but I just had to keep my eyes focused on what God can do. And I had to focus on, again, his promises of eternity and that hope. So I went into surgery the morning of, I slept like a baby the night before, which I tell everyone that is a miracle because I'm a typical female. I worry about everything. I'm you know, I've had anxiety issues, all this stuff. I slept like so peacefully. I woke up right before my alarm went off at like 3 a.m. And we go to the hospital. And I'm ready to get this done. I remember writing notes to my family just in case anything happened. I wrote notes to everyone that morning, I think. And then I painted my toenails because I knew they were, you know, they didn't look very nice and they were going to be operating and they were doing stuff with the nerves in my feet. So I wanted to make sure my toenails looked good. <laughs> Went into surgery and I remember waking up and they said, do you want to see your family, Caitlin? And I didn't realize that surgery was over. And I said, sure, I'll say goodbye one more time. And they said, no, it's over. I went, I'm alive. It was a beautiful moment. Um, and then it started sinking in that recovery was not going to be easy because I realized a few minutes later when they started doing some different neurological tests that I was completely deaf in my left ear and I couldn't really see anything clearly. Everything was a blur completely. It just hurt so much to open my eyes. And of course, you know, the first few days after any operation are really tough. I couldn't walk on my own. And the pain was really incredible. <laughs> and when I got released from the hospital, we spent a few days in Los Angeles before flying home. And then I had several weeks at home where my life was basically sitting in a recliner and the pain was agonizing. And again, I couldn't hear out of the left ear and my vision was just terrible. And I had planned to watch movies and read books in my recovery. And that wasn't happening. I couldn't even listen to music, which is my passion. Any slight noise was so intense to my hearing in my head. It just, I couldn't stand it even when family would come in the room and my nieces and nephews would visit, I'd have to have them like quiet down and whisper because it was just too loud for me to handle anything. And I, so I, I felt like I was in this cave. That was my world was like this cave. And a lot of the symptoms that I had were very similar to a stroke victim because of all the nerves that were involved. I had paralysis on half my face and um, it was, it was just really hard. And there was days where I felt like, Will this ever get better? And my surgeon, he said this surgery was, um, after doing thousands and thousands, he said this one was to the limit of his ability. And But he was very pleased with how it went. And his whole team was just in awe um, during the operation. They said it was amazing. But he kept promising me that things would get better, and I had to hold on to that. And he said this is temporary. These The nerve damage is temporary because he used the endoscope and it was so fine of a procedure, he didn't completely destroy those nerves. Had it been a typical craniotomy and an open brain um, microscopic procedure, it would have probably been very permanent. Um, so I had to hold on to that, but he did warn us that the hearing may never come back. Um, he was very real about that. He actually came out in the middle of the operation and told my family two thirds of the tumor was gone. He had gotten around the artery, which was awesome. But if he continued, I probably would lose my hearing. Were they okay with him finishing the operation? And as a musician, I kept telling him, I don't want to lose my hearing. And my vocal cords was another thing because that nerve was very close to that um, too. But 
the Lord completely spared those. And of course, my family said, finish this. We don't want to come back, you know, in a few years to finish this again. So I finished it. And that was difficult knowing that my hearing might never return. I just, those days were very challenging. And I think for the first time, I had such a respect for people who live with disabilities, all different types of disabilities, because I felt in those moments like I was a burden, but yet I saw the love of my family and the way that they served me and the way that they respected my life and that my life valued, even though I had nothing that I could give them in those moments. And even Jamie would come. I was living in Delaware. He was living in Virginia, and he would come every weekend to visit and just hold my hand. And that was months of our dating relationship was we weren't watching anything. I could hardly talk. I mean, he's just holding my hand in a chair all day, and then he would drive home. And I saw how they valued life. And even that that pro-life message that I had shared so much with people, that started to hit home because I saw how my life was valuable to God even in those weakest moments, and it was also valuable to my family. And I can never thank them enough for the love that they poured out to me in those days. When you were in those darkest days, I'm sure there was a lot going through your mind. And even though the doctor said this isn't permanent, there had to be moments where you were thinking this could be permanent. My dreams of being a recording artist, do I have to give them up? Was there a moment where you thought, Lord, if that's your plan, I I surrender to that plan? Yeah, that was a real struggle for me. I remember thinking that my recovery was going to be a lot faster if everything went well. And so I had all these concerts booked for that year. And there was a day, it was actually one month after my surgery, and I was still in the recliner and still feeling awful. And I told my mom, I need you to start calling places and canceling everything. And I was so torn up. I felt like my world had just crashed and everything that I wanted to do in that year was falling apart. And she did. She made those phone calls and emails and everything. And that day, I can't say I was really surrendering to the Lord. I was, that's when I got frustrated. That was probably one of the first days I was getting angry and frustrated. And I remember just taking it out on my mom, like having that teenage attitude again. I was just frustrated with life, and she was the only person that I could take it out on. So I just started whining and complaining. And, of course, my head's swollen and in pain, and I start crying. And she's like, don't cry, your head. (laughs) So I guess in that moment where I should have been surrendering, I really wasn't. But we continued this argument till past midnight, and I was sleeping in her room um, at that time. So that way she could take care of me through the night. And I remember her just saying, Caitlin, we need to stop. You need to go to bed. Your brain, like your head is swelling. You're crying. This is so bad. We need to just pray and ask God to forgive us for arguing. So I'm like, okay, fine. (laughs) And we pray and she prays this very just simple prayer of repentance to the Lord. Sorry for our attitudes and for arguing. And please just calm Caitlin down and, and please heal her. And, you know, she had her hand on my head. And when she finishes the prayer, she leaves the room and I hear a pop in my ear. And 
my hearing came back 100% in my left ear at that moment. And I, of course, sorry, I I start bawling again. (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness. She runs back in the room. Why are you crying? You just prayed about this. My hearing came back. And I knew it was an absolute miracle. And the verse came to mind immediately from James, confess your sins to one another so that way you may be healed. And I never really... That connection didn't actually ever make sense to me before about confession and healing. And I do believe that we serve a God that can heal and does miracles and wonders. But it just hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment, thinking in my moment of weakness and sin, when I had an attitude and I was frustrated and everything, but yet then we went to the Lord and we prayed and we confessed our sins. He gave me a gift that I didn't deserve, and it was his grace that healed me. It wasn't my super strong power faith that healed me in that moment. It was his grace in that moment. I didn't deserve it, but yet as a loving father, he decided to bless me with that. And so it was a very humbling moment for sure. That's an incredible story. That's a powerful story. I, I love how you tie it into I didn't deserve it. Yeah. It was in my brokenness that he graced mm-hmm. you. And and there is a dying to self that has to take place yeah. in our journey yeah. and a letting go. And it's a battle. Mm. It's a war sometimes. But those moments of surrender are incredibly sweet once we are at that point. So you are getting better and you and Jamie are making plans. And then the other shoe drops. What happened? Like I said, Jamie was just so faithful to me during this whole journey. And came to visit one weekend in April. It was two months after my surgery, and I felt like I was starting to turn that corner and feel a little bit more like myself. And he left to go home to Virginia, and I get a phone call the next day. And he basically says, my doctor thinks I have cancer. I have surgery tomorrow. And it was an absolute shock because... He was the strong one. He was the one that was carrying me. And I thought, I am not strong enough to deal with this and to help him with this. And I remember it was a totally different perspective. When I was going through my own journey, it's like, okay, I can just trust in the Lord and have that faith. He's going to carry me no matter what. But when it's someone that you love, that fear just sets in, like the incredible fear. So I remember my parents drove me down to Virginia the night before his surgery. It was was the first time I had gone anywhere. And uh, we stayed at friends of his, um, their house the night before. And I remember just one of the only nights that I cried was that night. And I was crying out to the Lord. I don't understand what you're doing. I don't, I don't know how much more we can take. This is so hard. And I was trying to trust and trying not to be angry but I just felt so weak, and I, I was scared. I didn't know what was going to happen. And so what did happen? So he had his surgery, and we were encouraged by his first doctor in Virginia to start chemo right away. But then at Johns Hopkins, they said to wait because there's no point in doing— no one wants to do chemo if the cancer was completely gone. So we had that option but we would have to wait for several weeks and do continual blood work and to see if there's any cancer anywhere in his body. And so in that waiting process, I didn't know this, but the 
Friday before he got his diagnosis, he had ordered an engagement ring. <laughs> and I had no idea. <laughs> and so we were actually on the way to an oncology appointment for him. And he said, let's go for a walk before we go to my appointment. And so I'm like, sure. And that wasn't anything surprising to me because I was like, the only thing we could do was hobble around and take like a little walk outside. It was springtime. And we go to some, um, this park on the Potomac River. And before I know it, he's down on one knee asking me to marry him. And of course I said, yes, I was so elated and couldn't believe it because of everything crazy going on. And so we decided that we were just going to go ahead and plan our wedding. And after everything we'd been through, we felt like life is so unpredictable. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So why would we put off what we feel like is God's plan for us? I remember it was 4th of July weekend. He visited, and then he had an appointment at Johns Hopkins that week, and my parents and I went to that. And it was supposed to be just a little checkup with his new oncologist there. And he said, so your tumor markers have shot up and you're going to need chemo. And that crush again just hit us. Um, And it was just, again, one of those moments in a doctor's office where you feel like, what is going on? But Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I just have to have faith. And so... And we told him, well, we're getting married in 10 weeks. And he said, you're not going to that wedding. There's no way you're going to that wedding. And Jamie said, oh, yes, I am. We already sent the invitations out. (laughs) And so he squeezed him in, and that began a whole nother journey of nine weeks. So you're going through, I've been through chemo. I know it's Mm. it's rough. I can't even imagine getting married after nine weeks of chemo. So you have a beautiful wedding. Your life is, um, you feel as though everything is behind you. But there was there was a glitch with Mm. the the chemo treatments. Mm. There was the thought that you wouldn't be able to have a baby. And uh. so you're pregnant. <laughs> so Beautiful baby. how amazing is that? That's been incredible. We were told by so many doctors, they all warned us, you know, you probably will never have children. You know, you probably need to do fertility treatment or this or that. And because of my pro-life work, I'm just so passionate about adoption. And so we actually had talked about the possibility of adoption before we were ever engaged, before any of his diagnosis. And so when that all came up, we said, all right, Lord, if we can't have biological children, we would be delighted to adopt. So that was really a blessing just to have that peace and to lay that down before God. And so we went into marriage, you know, thinking they said two years, definitely absolutely no kids, maybe in the future, you know, some people can, some people can't, but you know, your chances are very slim. And six months into our marriage, I find out I'm pregnant. (laughs) And we were shocked. I remember taking the pregnancy test and we both go, is there such a thing as a false positive? (laughs) Can this be? We were so excited, so excited. I believe that every single life is a miracle and every child is an absolute gift from God and that no life Even when medicine and science says one thing, that isn't always the plan because God is so much greater beyond our comprehension. He can do things that are beyond our wildest dreams. Um, And again, it wasn't that we deserved this baby or that, you know, we had this extra strong faith that somehow blessed us with this child. But 
in the Lord's sovereign will, he he knew that this was what he wanted for our family. And so we're just grateful and receive that with thanks. Caitlin, you're about 29 years old now, and you've lived a lifetime. Uh, you have experienced more downs than most people will experience in a lifetime. And yet there uh, comes from you a joy and a peace. And uh, even in the middle of the struggles, you've admitted that there were really hard days and struggles. And as we wrap up our time together, we've talked a lot about the Lord um, and your faith in Him. But you and I both know that there is a person who makes that relationship possible, and that's a relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up our time together, would you just talk to that person who's listening right now who maybe resonates with faith, a universal faith, but is curious as to what makes your faith so personal and what is it that gives you that kind of intimacy with this God who is so far away and yet so close? You know, um, there's so many people that believe in a generic God or just um, maybe a creator or, you know, just this force out there and maybe they pray, you know, want to sense a spirituality in their life. Every religion out there depends on our goodness and our um, human striving to reach God. And the one religion that is different is the one that goes through Jesus Christ because it has nothing to do with any of our good works or our striving or our living this really good life. It has everything to do with our brokenness and needing a savior who would reach into our lives and lift us out of the dust and the ashes and give us hope and new life. And even just looking back on my journey, I see, yes, I had faith, but I am a sinner and I am weak and I am broken and I have struggles and I can't reach God on my own. There's no possible way. And I can't, I can't somehow earn his love by my faith or by loving him or any of that. His extraordinary, perfect love is what has saved my life and has rescued me. Not, not just physically through healing and all these wonderful things, but spiritually and eternally. And Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, came as a humble baby here to earth to experience all the pain that we ever experience, all the suffering that we ever experience, all the temptations, everything, to walk that road of the mess of humanity (laughs) and then take it to the cross, take all of our sins, all of our shame, all of the suffering on the cross upon his shoulders to nail it there forever and then to overcome death when he rose again from the grave and to give us eternal life and eternal hope. And um, I just can't emphasize enough that when I walked through this journey, that truth of Jesus' love was the only thing that carried me day in and day out. And those dark nights, those times in the valley is when it became so real that I needed a savior. I couldn't save myself. I needed him at every moment. And one of the verses that I remember just being in my head during my recovery was from Psalm 3. 
but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And it was very real because my head at that time was so swollen and weak. And I just felt, I couldn't even remember what the reference was, but that kept going through my head that whole time. Um, but I think in a spiritual way, we need the Lord. He is our shield around us. He is our glory and the lifter of not only our heads, but our entire lives. We need a savior to lift our lives. We can't rise up to somehow meet him. And he's the one that reaches down and picks us up when we're in the middle of the mess. If you listener are wanting to know more about Jesus and the savior that Caitlin has so beautifully shared about this morning. You can go to our website at markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org, where you'll find a step-by-step way of knowing Jesus. And the first step is to recognize your need for a Savior, and then to ask Him and receive the forgiveness that He offers to those who recognize their own sinfulness And to pray that prayer of, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me of my sins. And then to know with confidence that God cannot lie, and he has promised that anyone who genuinely asks for forgiveness will receive that forgiveness, and that he will come into your heart and he will be there forever. And then there are other resources on our website that will help you to learn how to walk by faith and how to trust him, especially when your life is turned upside down. Caitlin Jane is a beautiful young woman whose joy in the Lord is so evident in her story. And you can learn more about Caitlin. You can visit our website at markinc.org where we will have the information about her ministry and a link to her website. You can find out more about her music, her albums, Ashes Into Beauty and Coming Season that uh, she has produced and other music that is in her heart that she is producing. Uh, Caitlin is also passionate about children who are orphaned and is often an advocate for Compassion International. Uh, and, And actually, when she met her own little girl, Wanda, that she had been supporting for so long, she went back to her hotel room and wrote a beautiful song called Sing Over Us. So everything that you've heard today is because Caitlin wants you to understand the love of Jesus in a way that maybe you never have before. And Caitlin, we're so grateful for you to be here today. My name is Sharon Batters, and you have been listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. It is one of our help and hope uh, resources. Again, you can go to markinc.org where you can access many, many stories like this that will offer you the help and hope of the gospel. And We hope that you'll share with us your story of help and hope and also how these stories are guiding you in your own walk of faith.